Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded and today I'm going to interview Lindsay Siviter. Lindsay, thank you so much for having me in your lovely home today and I'm absolutely amazed at the amount of things, books, (laughs) headlines, newspapers, the, the whole thing, signatures that you've got around you and we'll come on to that. But where did it all begin for you? Um, well, I grew up in Birmingham um, with my sisters, um, but I was always interested in true crime from a very early age, but especially like objects and museums and things. So actually when I was about eight years old, I started voluntary work in different museums. So all of my holidays were always spent doing voluntary work in museums in wow. Shropshire and, and in Birmingham. Um, and I was always interested in objects and passionate about objects, and I still am today having worked in museums for many years. So what was the... The motivator, when you say you, you were really interested in true crime, yeah. what was the motivator, what was the catalyst that actually sparked that? Um, as a child, I really loved Sherlock Holmes stories, so I really got immersed in the Victorian period especially. Um, and then when I was 12, something quite significant happened to me. Um, I watched a Jack the Ripper film, the famous one, you might have seen it with Michael Caine in it, yeah. the two-part drama. And... I had never sort of watched anything like that before, but I loved the Victorian stuff, having been a Sherlock Holmes fan. So I watched the film and then something bizarre happened to me in my bedroom, which I've I've told other people. At the end of the the TV series, I heard a voice in my room and it basically said, when it was revealed who the Ripper was at the end, this man did not do this, you have to prove it. So I was set on a quest very much to sort of disprove who this particular suspect was. Um... And that's when I first got into sort of the Jack the Ripper world, if you like, which is what most people know me for these days. And that's when my, my real interest in true crime started, really. So as a 12-year-old. That's fascinating. I mean, Jack the Ripper is a, a, a subject close to so many people's hearts and the fact that you've got so much knowledge wrapped around it. So you've gone through your, your, your schooling. Yeah. How, was, how were you viewed upon by the other kids <laughs> in the class? Because, I mean, to have that drive is quite unusual yeah um I didn't have that many close friends at school I have to say and sadly my closest friend passed away suddenly when she was 14 so that that was the first time I'd ever had grief in my life which imp- impacted me quite a lot but actually it was during that the teenage years when I really got into the series Inspector Morse um, and you can see when you walk down my corridor, if you didn't notice it, there's a whole exhibition on Inspector You've got Morse. audio books of, <laughs> of, of Colin Dexter's work. Well, I'm very lucky because I was voted the official number one fan in the country. Um, so I was on set for five years. Really? Um, and I'm, I'm in a few of them as a little background artist. And I got to meet all my heroes. And then over the years, I mean, I'm doing Electronic um, in, in Ealing in, in July this year. And I still get asked to do some consultancy work on it. I'm a member of the, still the Inspector Morse Society and that. But over the years, I got to meet all my heroes, work on exhibitions on Morse, um, do books and all sorts of things with other people. So it, I've always believed ever since I was little that your dreams can come true no matter what your background is, you know, because I came from quite a humble, poor background compared to many people. But I always wanted to have some sort of connection with the police and Morse and things like that, and hence why I moved to Oxford. If Morse had been filmed in Rotherham, I'd have gone to live in Rotherham. Really? But I was so addicted to Morse, that's why I moved to Oxford and lived there for many so years. So you met the great John Thor? Many years, yeah. Being a good friend, yes. Yeah, I mean, what a guy. I, and I, I know I saw that... I've got that game, that Sweeney. <laughs> the Sweeney, Sweeney board game. game. <laughs> yeah. But the Sweeney, as, as a kid for me, that was yeah. my... I'm, I'm that much older than you, but that was my staple diet as a, as a kid. And John Thor was one of my you know, film heroes, if you like, or, or, or media hero, heroes. I was very lucky to, to get to work with him and get to know him very well over the years. It was a dream come true, yeah. Fantastic. And, of course, you had Lawrence Fox, who was on the set as well. That was a few years later, of course, in the Lewis series. Yeah. So I was I was uh, on the guest of Lewis for a little while as well, but I'd sort of moved on, really. I think when John passed away, a part of me 
went, went with, it. with it, yeah. yeah. And my sort of a lot of my childhood went, so I sort of moved on to other other things. So you've left school. Yeah. How did you progress your career with in what you're doing now? So always still passionate about history. Um, did my A levels, went to Oxford to live and so I went to Oxford, Univ- Oxford Brooks University so I did a history of art degree continuing on my passion for sort of history doing the more stuff while I was there working in exhibitions and do so paid and voluntary work in various museums and that um, always sort of having the police sort of around me whether it be the more stuff or sort of getting to know some of the locals and in fact um, that's where I met my husband who was actually sort of uh, working for Oxford University Police he was Inspector Morse right. uh, the, the equivalent of back then so that was a bit spooky um, and then I sort of carried off after university I went to live in Paris came back um, went to live there and worked as a historian as an archivist at a cathedral then I sort of came back um, we moved to London. I got a job at the Science Museum where I worked for several years doing lots of different things. And all of this time throughout my sort of academic career, I was sort of doing stuff in my free time connected with various societies. So I joined like the Whitechapel Society and lots of other historical societies with, with the true crime element in it. So I've self-absorbed and with all the true crime stuff, just self-taught all the, all the time. Well, actually then, while I was at the Science Museum, I did an, an MA in Egyptology. So I was doing lots of lectures and stuff on that. But the true crime was always sort of bubbling away. It was always one of my passions. And then sort of when I, um, it sort of really came to a head, I suppose, for me, when my big dream came true in 2013, when I was accepted as an official volunteer for the Met Police at the Crime Museum at Scotland Yard, which was all my dreams come true. <laughs> which, which is an amazing place. I've been there once and, um, yeah, when it was in... The Victoria Building, the as Victoria I call it. The Victoria Building, yeah. 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 And it, it was absolutely amazing. Where were you in Paris? What, what, what museum were you at in Paris? So I was actually working for the American Cathedral in Paris. I was actually at a cathedral and I was the first person to organise and do their whole archive for them because I was actually a parishioner <laughs> doing other jobs and then I said, oh, I'd love to see our archives and they were like, oh, actually this cathedral was built by an Oxford architect and I'd just left Oxford and I was like, I'd love to see all the archives. I was like, well, well, they're all in boxes in the cellar from 200 years ago. I was like, my God, you know, you need someone to sort them out and they were like, well, do you want to do it? We'll pay you. So I sort of got a job doing that. Um, but I also worked as a tour guide around the Louvre because uh, I'd just done like history of art degree, so I sort of specialised in Dutch and Flemish art at that point. Wow. So, um, but yeah, my French isn't too bad, but actually I did English tours. <laughs> oh, did you? My French yeah. is terrible. All I can do is apologise <laughs> that I can't speak French. But, um, and I absolutely love Paris, and I went yeah. went to the catacombs. Yes. Well, I lived not far from there oh, at one okay. point. Yeah, Donfa Rochereau, because there's a few catacombs, but actually I, I lived opposite the entrance. Yeah, for a while. I mean, that was an absolutely amazing, amazing place. Yeah. And if people haven't been, you should make that as a part of your Paris trip because I I mean, I love Paris. I really, really no, love, no, I love do. Paris. Although it's really I, nice. I probably enjoy Bordeaux more. I've not been to Bordeaux. You should. It's, it is, and that's very historical because mm. that's where the um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the uh, Richard Lionheart, there's a lot of streets named in English, and the museum is around the English occupation of that part of France. It's really, really okay, it's a cool. cool place. But your theme for true crime has just con- continued whilst... throughout my whole life, really, and then it really escalated. I think when I got to the crime museum because I was totally immersed in it um, several days a week, got to know all of the cases quite well within that museum. Um, then started really collecting my my library. So I form what I call the Civita True Crime Archive. So that's got I said about five thousand books, ephemera, and objects belonging to criminals and to famous crimes. So we're surrounded by quite a lot of them in this little you room are. in my study. I, I mean, if if we go back to the go back to the um, the police museum, mm. it used to be known as the Black Museum. Didn't Indeed, it? so yes. But. In there, they've got the the ropes from executions. They've got the death mask from executions. Yep. They've got the kitchen there from Dennis Nielsen. Yeah. Uh, Keith Blakelock's tunic, plus a whole host of other things there. Hundreds of objects. What amazing. was your favourite object within there? What one did you Ooh, walk in every morning gosh. and say, oh, oh I gosh. absolutely love that? Oh, I'm not sure I could choose a favourite. Although I have to say, I do like old-fashioned sort of wanted posters. Oh, and right. the one for the Cripping case, which was which next to the objects connected with that, I always sort of admired it. And now, um, many years later, I have an original myself. There's only about three or four in the world, no which way. I purchased at auction. So I actually, And that is the same matching one as the Crime Museum, which wow. I have now framed here. So, because I actually own quite a lot of Dr. Crippin's actual objects, his glasses are just here. 
Are they really? <laughs> Those are his actual spectacles, yeah. Um, so for me, probably the Crippen exhibits were always my favourite, so I'm very lucky to have that poster. And how did you? How do you come by these things? <clears throat> um, auctions all over the country, really. Some on eBay, some things on eBay, but some are major auction houses. So the Crippen exhibits, which I have here, uh, medical bottles and his glasses and a few other things, um, you know, they're sev- they were several hundred pounds. Were they? And they're, they're one-off, they're rare, obviously, and I even have a couple of photographs of um, his victim, Cora, Cora's grave, and that which have never been published, never been seen, and they're worth hundreds of pounds. And also an actual signed photograph by Cora with a message on the back. There's only about three examples of her handwriting in the world. So to have that, I'm very lucky to have that as well. That is fascinating. Yeah, we have all sorts here. (laughs) I mean, I'm absolutely... Lord Lucan's photograph features here, and because he was a local resident... So here was he not? No, he was in Belgravia, not Belgravia. too far away. But um, the Lucan case is something that I have um, a particular passion for, um, having befriended Lady Lucan before she died for several years. Oh, really? So I used to go around and interview her and chat to her. And um, I've met uh, Sandra Rivet's son as well, who I'll hopefully be working with. So I've been involved on documentaries over the years on lots of different crimes, including the Lord Lucan stuff. We've got stuff in the background. What pipeline was at the Lady Lucan? What was Lady Lucan like? <laughs> <laughs> um... I got on with her really well. I know for other people she could be very difficult, but I think she'd been wrongly talked about in many aspects by different people and always seen as like having mental health issues um, and all a bit crazy sometimes. And actually the lady I knew was far from that and she was very astute, even though she was you know, fairly elderly when I knew her. Um, she was very open. She would talk to me about absolutely anything from her sexual life to all sorts of other things, you know, very open lady. And we just got on really well. I don't know whether she sort of saw me as a bit of a, a daughter figure for a while. I'm not sure, which was, which was lovely. But, no, she signed things for me and, and other things. And, um, yeah, no, that, that case is something I've been very interested in for a long time. Um, and I have lots of objects belonging to Lady Luke and herself. So there's some pictures here which I'm sort of showing you. Yeah. And all of the images that I'm showing you of Lady Lucan, all of the clothes that she's wearing in these images, I actually own now. So I have like a, a half a wardrobe of, of her objects. So, um, for example, if you hold those pictures... Yeah, sure. Okay, and just here. So I'm just bringing into the room. So here's two two of her objects, her two wow. suits. So this black velvet jacket, yep. if you go on the internet and do Google searches, there's a picture of it there. I only wanted to acquire some of her things which she'd got press photographs for. So Deep we could actually... Exactly. Yeah. And this jacket is probably my proudest thing that I have connected to her because she wore this at the inquest in 1975. Wow. So nearly every day she was wearing this actual jacket. So where did you get that from? Where did... um, after she passed away, a lot of her stuff went to different auctions all over the country. So I acquired all of these from the same auction. Wow. Um, and as you can see, she's a petite little thing. She's yeah. sort of size eight. And if you look at some of the other pictures, you'll see this suit, which she wore. So that was the last dress in that particular picture. So I have all of this. I won't get them all out now. No. But, so that's this is the well, suit there. Yeah. At the lease, London. Do they yeah. still exist, Delise? I don't know. And that one says Kenneth Cole, New York. But I mean, the original. Kenneth Cole's as well. are still going. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. And we, if, if we can, we'll put mm. some of these pictures up online if that's okay. Yeah. And then, so I have other things of hers, all sorts of things from handbags to shoes. You know, I could do like a little exhibition really on some of her things. Um, Luke and stuff though. So there you go. You can hold Lord Lucan's hat. Wow. If you wish to. Okay, and... Did these go through an auction house Yes, well? these are all from auctions. And this is one of his last checkbooks. Oh, my life, the Earl of Lucan. Yeah. And this is one of his last wallets. <laughs> That's amazing. You've got a real passion for this, haven't you? Well, because I'm a museum person, so objects are, you know, for me, quite important. Very. But, you know... How do you feel about the, the modern... I mean, this we're, we're doing social history now, and I'm really mm. into social history, as you probably know. But how do you feel about the modern medium of, of extracting information? Because we're not going to have these wonderful books in years to come. It's the digital world with policing. It is going to prove really difficult to do 
in the future for archive and historians especially because it's like you know we've got the physical paperwork whereas like now you know police forces don't have to keep things forever they don't have the physical space to keep it but how are we even going to hear a lot of this digital stuff when we're not even going to have the equipment to play it in 100 years this seriously does worry me as a historian more than anything else because it's like you know how a future historian is going to be able to you know, to hear any of the evidence, the stories, see if this stuff. I really don't know. I don't know how they're going to deal with it. I, I hope that things get committed to to this format because the recordings will stay forever. Yeah. yeah the, but saying that, you've still got to have the equipment in 100 years to play these things. Yeah, but I, th- I, I personally think that the cloud is only going to increase and there'll always yeah. be, you know, the storage will be held on, on there. Yeah. Fruit. I'm an old-fashioned person, though. I just like books. Yeah, no, I like. I do. I like tangible <laughs> yeah, objects. Yeah. It's, it's like CDs and albums. Yeah. It's having that tangible object. Yeah. To look and you can at. see, surrounded by here, we've got a lot of the original videos and stuff. And I still have a VHS behind my laptop over there. Do you? Because I do play a lot of the original crime videos and stuff on the Black Museum, and you know, all sorts of original videos, which you know you can't even get on DVD these days. Do you, so, I'm just asking, but. Are you going to get committed to a digital format, or? Um, yes, I'd like to at some point. Definitely, all of the it just costs a lot of money to yeah, organise. I know. When you were in in Paris, did you get drawn in by the French crimes as well, or was it always driven around? The... No, no, I did really didn't have time because of the work that I was doing, and also my life was so immersed in Jack the Ripper at the time. So even though I was working in Paris, I was actually spending a lot of my free time in the British Library over there. Um, because I was sort of really getting into all of that stuff. And then when I would come back to England sporadically, I would be going to the Whitechapel Society and doing lectures there and, and other things. So, And then that's it was around that time when I sort of came back, I met one of my heroes, Richard Jones, who runs Discovery Tours. And we met at a party and he literally sort of said on the spot, would you like to be one of my, my guides, my ripper guides? And that's uh, the main work that I've been doing for over the last 20 years, as well as working in museums. Right. So I've been known from, from most people know me as a sort of ripper guide and sort of person on do- a lot of the documentaries and stuff. That's fascinating. Are there any murderers that you would have liked to have met? I mean, Crippin is Blimey. probably... <laughs> I'm not sure I want to meet any of them, really. Um, although saying that, it would be interesting to meet them to to try and psychologically analyse them, maybe. I, I've, <laughs> I've met a lot, and yeah. I've got to say, it's very. I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I'm a nothingist. But to have that, to try and get behind those eyes, it's mm. a very difficult thing to yeah, do. Yeah. And you never know when you're interviewing that person. I've interviewed in the region 36 people for murder. When you're sitting opposite them, you don't know what way they're going to go. Well, majority of them are psychopaths anyway, so they're going to be lying. <laughs> for well, they, reasons, they are, possibly. and then you've got the you know you've got the 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 crime of passion, if you like, where somebody can't take any more yeah. from domestic violence, or yeah. you've got the cold-hearted killer that's gone and blown somebody's head off because they got paid a, a few quid yeah, to do yeah. it. So there are there are different, but they are all different. I don't know. I would have liked I would have liked to have met Ruth Ellis actually. Yeah. Well, there's a lady I talked to called Linda Calvey, and she's also known as the Black Widow. And, um, you know, we talk about the different female mm. criminals. And, yeah, Ruth Ellis would probably be up there. Um, and she she served time with Mara Hindley. Yeah, I think I've read about Linda, actually. Yeah. Um, Interesting lady. Yeah, yeah. And I've got literally all the books on the cases of UC behind you. I've got like a women's section, oh, <laughs> a female yeah. murderer section, yeah. uh, Edith Thompson and, you know, some real famous people. I was very lucky to be invited to the reinterment of Edith um, when they removed her body and placed her in the City of London Cemetery a couple of years ago. So that was an amazing thing to, to go oh, we, to. We, we, were, we were talking earlier about uh, Jill Dando and you've got mm. the book there and I was lucky mm. en- enough to meet her on a couple of occasions at the Crime Watch uh, studios. And on the day that she was murdered, we were going to Romford to arrest somebody for an offence that we had put on Crime Watch, um, which, she, which she featured. But criminals are interesting people, aren't mm, they? Definitely. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, and also I think I'm, I'm quite interested in mysteries, though, because there's a lot of cases, including the Crippin and the Lucan case, which some people think are just black and white. Yeah. He did it, they didn't do it. But actually, when you really get into the nuances and the smaller aspects of it, especially the Lucan case, there's evidence for and against. 
you know, yeah. actually. And and for Crippen as well, funnily enough. So it's like, hmm, actually, is it as black and white? And as, from a historian's point of view, what I like to do if I give lectures on these cases is to sort of say, well, let's start with, the you know, who thinks this person's guilty? And, oh, definitely guilty, definitely. By the end, my achievement is to, at least if you can question your original yeah. ideas, then that, for me, I've done a good job because it means you've sort of opened up your ideas to encompass other things which may not be known to the general public. So. And what, what was Crippin's MO? Or, or, yeah, what was he What was he famous for? Well, Crippin, if he indeed was the murderer, okay, yeah. he's gone down as guilty because he was hanged, to be fair, yeah. only actually killed one person. That was his wife. So some would say this is a domestic murder anyway. But I think one of the reasons the case has got so famous is because obviously he was actually caught the first time through wireless as he's making his escape with his mistress, Ethel Lenive. But also the the way he he got rid of his... Well, attempted to get rid of his wife, Cora's body, in the cellar of his own house... Um, it's quite unusual, even for back then, really, because when the remains, and I say the remains, they were remains because there were no bones ever found because this skeleton had been deboned, beheaded, and there were no sort of limbs or anything. It was kind of just sadly the internal organs of the mush <laughs> in the, from the viscera within sort of, you know, this, this cellar which was found. What always intrigued me, and then having seen the original exhibits from the case in the museum, was that why would you go to all of that trouble? You've, 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 you've killed your wife for whatever reasons, and there's lots of possible reasons why you did it. You've, you know, got rid of the head, for obviously, for ident- being a medical man, he knows identification purposes, get rid of the teeth, get rid of all things. And yet you've got rid of everything, yet you keep just the viscera, put it in the cellar, and then you actually get scissors and cut off, not pull or yank, you've cut off sections of your wife's hair and placed it in the cellar never to be said what where why that is one of the many strange little things in that case it's like why would you even do that you've got rid of the head why are you cutting hair off it's not as if he's keeping it for trophies like christy no. would have done in his in his you know his little tin from Rillington place he kept those as souvenirs to obviously as many many serial killers do that but Crippen was never going to get access to this again. So why would you even cut the the hair, the hair off? It doesn't make any sense. And where did where did Crippen live? So this was um, Hilldrop Crescent, um, so North London. Yeah, and the house is sadly not there. It's literally one of two which was bombed during World War Two and then sort of demolished. But the rest of the Crescent's there. <laughs> but really? the sort of the building you kind of we all want to take pictures of has gone. And Christie so, was remind me he ten millions in place. Ten millions in place, and he yeah. was the acid bath. No, no, that was John Hague. John Hague. That was John Hague. Yeah, and his exhibits are in the Crime Museum. If you yeah. remember seeing those, so um, the enamel bath. John, yeah, John Christie was actually the chap he had six victims, several ladies of the night, and also his wife, Ethel, who he buried under the floorboards. Um, so, And I have various things connected to him as well. So this object here is actually a wallpaper scraper, and I have some other things from Rillington Place before it was demolished. Wow. And um, a bicycle pump, <laughs> which was found in the garden, and sort of original police plans and various other things as well from the investigation. I wonder where the investigative notes are. Where do they hold the investigation notes? I mean, there would have been a file that had been prepared. Oh, it's for... huge. Yeah, several boxes for, for many of our murders. The Crippen case, the Christie case, they are voluminous and they're all at the National Archives and anybody right. can go and see those now. And do you go and examine them? Of course, yeah. <laughs> Over the years, some favourite cases, yes. And I was doing something um, at the Crime Museum a few years ago about re-identifying re-identif- a gun, which was on display. And it had been displayed for many years as the gun that shot George Cornell. And I just, I always like to know my provenance of objects. I don't trust any labels. It's like, I want to know the research. And so I was like, I'm not sure that is the gun that shot George Cornell. And the curator was like, well, why would you say that? It's been labelled like that <laughs> before my time, you know. And I was like, well... A, I heard various things that Kate Cray actually possibly owned that gun and it wasn't the gun. But actually, look at the physical gun itself. And this is where my museum training would come in. And he said, OK, well, I said, well, what state is the gun in? He says, well, it's, this gun's in, it's in the showcase. It's in pretty bad condition. I went, bingo. But what's caused that condition, do you think? And he said, well, it looks waterlogged to me. I went, bingo, because that's the gun that was fished out of the canal, which went to shoot Jack the Hat McVitie. Everything Road, and he says, Well, you're gonna have to try and prove that. So, I went to the National Archives, got 25 boxes out on the craze files, found the relevant paperwork, and yes, that was the gun. So, we could relabel it correctly in the museum. So, can I share a story with you? Mm. I was fortunate enough to go to the FBI Academy in Quantico. Oh, wow, cool! And as I, as I arrived there, the front 
of the uh, the drive up is if you remember um, Silence of the Lambs, where yeah. Clarissa runs up the hill and she she's done a fitness test and there's this big yeah. sign saying the FBI. Well, you pull up there and you go in, and the grounds have got all these buildings in, but then they've got a, a town, and the town comprises of famous crime scenes. Oh wow! So Dillinger, where the bank robberies that took place, Bonnie Clyde, the whole lot. Well, having done the piece of work that I had to do it was on a, um, a case that a girl had been sexually assaulted with the FBI um, scientists they took us into the armory and there I held the guns that John Dillinger wow. used in his shootout Pretty Boy Floyd and the rifle that was used to do the ballistic test for the Kennedy assassination wow. not the actual rifle used mm. but the one they did the ballistic test, test on. on yeah so yeah I, I mean I'm, I'm I'm with you. I absolutely love these tangible objects. Yes, and, and being able to hold sort of that gun and also the Ruth Ellis gun, the one that she actually did shoot David Blakely with. And the first thing I'd never really, until I worked in the museum, I'd never held firearms. Why, why would I? Um, so to actually re-display those and organise those was a, was a great privilege, especially such historic weapons as well. And the first thing I really noticed when I held that gun, which Ruth used, was just how heavy it was. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd never held guns before, and obviously automatics are a lot lighter than revolvers and other things. So I was like, wow, you know, she would have had to have some practice with this, and indeed she did. Um, but, yeah, no, tangible objects always... They bring stories to life anyway, don't they? Absolutely. You know, which is why I love Have they still got the hands in the... Uh... Ah, Donald Merritt's arms. Arms, Indeed yeah. so, attached to, to the hands. Brought over from Cologne when he committed suicide, but they needed to prove that the scratches on his arms... Uh, were done by his mother-in-law, um, and indeed, yeah, he did escape just because ultimately he committed suicide, sadly, but yes, he had killed a couple of people. Yeah, so they chopped his arms off, put them in chloroform and sent them... Uh, there's a bit of a myth about that, and we actually dis we actually found out the real truth oh, because... Of, yeah, well, I think a lot of the curators in the past, you know, never, get the, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, good story isn't it? No. And when we went to the actual documents, it was discovered that actually someone from Scotland Yard did physically go over to Germany to actually accompany... Oh, <laughs> the okay. arms back. They weren't just posted by the Germans saying, here you go, here's your, your fingerprint. Yeah. And no, no, we actually did go over. Right. Yeah, I mean, th that was one of the things that uh, when I went in 90, whatever, 91, 90, 91, I'm trying to think who the curate would have been back then. So Bill, well, Bill Waddell was there till 1993. Well, there you go. That would probably been about... So he was the chap on a lot of the documentaries you may have yeah. seen. Um, I became good friends with Bill in the last few years of his life, and some of the things in here um, were gifts from Bill. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. fantastic. Fair. And they tell a great story. I think, what, was it one of the princes who was Prince and Edward, who was tasered? He wanted to know how oh. the taser worked. And yeah, it was, it was really, it's okay. a, it was a fascinating place. And because it's now moved to the new building, yes, I assume. Yes, the Curtis Green building, yeah, in the basement. There. Are you still involved at the... Uh... Um, no, I'm not a volunteer anymore, but I'm still friends with everybody there. And we meet up every few weeks. And I'm still doing research, funnily enough, in my free time on a lot of the objects there, just because I'm so so like addicted to them so in a way. It. So yes, I'm still doing a lot of research on, on some of the objects. You said about the craze, and the craze were they held as icons in some sections yeah. of society. I mean, I don't, I find criminals fascinating, mm. um, but I don't hold them up as a as an iconic figure. No, then that that worries me. That yeah. a lot of people sadly do that with a lot of criminals. And as a, a crime historian, yes, I may own objects connected with these crimes, but I don't glorify no. their crimes, and I certainly don't glorify the criminals. No, no, no. And I'm not suggesting that. I don't want you to think. No, I no, that's that. all right. But other but, people might. But think that. I mean, the the, <laughs> the the folklore around the craze, in particular, you know, they were good boys. They never hurt nobody. You know, they only looks yeah. looks after your mum and all that sort of stuff. It's like the Richardsons as well. And yeah. um, I don't know if you remember when you went to the museum, they actually had the torture box belonging to yeah. the Richardsons. And I was actually lucky a few years ago to meet Eddie Richardson at a party and we were chatting. And um, it was actually Tommy Wisby, who was one of the last train robbers. It was his book launch, which I got invited to. So I met Tommy and I met Eddie. And I was chatting to Eddie and I said, oh, I'm actually working at Scotland Yard. And the, kind of the room went silent. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not policewoman. It's like, I'm a historian, don't panic. And I, and I was chatting to Eddie and I said, you know, we've still got your torture box, which was used at the trial and stuff. And he was like, he just went silent and he just looked at me deadpan and went, can I have it back? <laughs> and I went, no. Oh, 
you know. Brilliant. But then um, I surprised Tommy Wisby. I said, can I be cheeky? And he goes, what? I says, well, I've bought my own Monopoly money with me. Um, please, could you sign it? Obviously, the Monopoly money was used in the original case with the fingerprint evidence to actually help convict them, and with it, along with other things as well from Leather Slade Farm. So, and he went, you're so cheeky. He went, all right, then I'm going to sign several Monopoly. So I have those in my... <laughs> was that August the 8th, 1963? 1963, yeah. 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 When you meet these people, they're all... Older, aren't they? Yeah, it's, of course. It's, uh, Freddie Foreman. All the they're all older people, but, yeah. but they're very interesting. And yeah, a lot and many have said their time, and yeah. you, know, you know things have moved on. And no, I don't, you know, ex- exonerate their crimes and things like that because you can't do that. But as a historian, it's before these people do leave us. It is always interesting to meet them, and if you yeah. can get all history from them, yeah, absolutely, you know, right. it's important. Absolutely, and because the craze were held at the Tower of London, they were one of the last mm. set of prisoners to be held there. I've got some original letters um, written by. Um, Reggie Cray as Oh, well. really? Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. And what about the modern site, like the Essex boys? Do you, do you keep up to speed with that? Or is no, that not I'm not really... really into a lot of the modern stuff, I have to say. I'm more definitely the older history for me. Pa- passionate about the Victorian era, and there's so many amazing criminals during that time. But sort of, you know, but saying that, it's not really the modern stuff. Probably the most recent stuff that I'm interested in might be sort of Jill Dando, the Susie Lamplew case. Again, my- <coughs> mysteries to us, some and unresolved cases. Lucan's obviously the 70s. Um, very interested in Dennis Nilsson. And I don't know, I think for me, though, probably the Victorian stuff is one of my favourite eras. Yeah. And I was very lucky because while I was working at um, Scotland Yard, I was also working um, in the archive at Madame Tussauds. And I was brought in just to sort of study and look at the Chamber of Horrors exhibits, which was a great privilege. So sort of working at the, the Crime Museum and also working at that. And actually we found there were objects which kind of maybe not should have been in Two Swords collections because they were police objects oh, really? from, from, from famous cases. And a lot of people don't know that Two Swords actually do have a private archive and certainly the family, you know, over 100 years ago in the press very much made it public that they wanted to acquire objects from crime scenes, not just have the murders depicted in, in the chamber. But, uh, for example, there's a famous murder called Frederick Deeming. They have his death mask in the crime museum. He um, was actually... Uh, a murderer who was convicted and executed in Australia, but he killed his family over here and then a family over there. And when his 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 Liverpool family were exhumed from the kitchen in in Rainhill, Two Swords then acquired the whole kitchen, and the basement and the flagstones, and they re-erected it here in London. Amazing. And somebody actually died. One of the workers installing it actually died so they believed it was cursed and then it all got destroyed in the 1925 fire so a lot of the stuff sadly i mean two swords had amazing things they had like so much napoleonica they had like napoleon's coaches they had all his amazing things all destroyed in that fire really wow such a shame talking about exhibits yeah um, but no they they still have a lot of crime stuff and i remember being invited sort of saying well I don't know all these murderers' names. There's just names with boxes, you know, boxes with names on them all in this attic, and we've got to move everything. Do you want to come and like have a look through it? And of course, I was like going, "Oh my God, Mary Pearcey or Christie or Hague and Dennis Nilsson. They've got a lot of objects belonging to Dennis Nilsson, um, which I now, having researched, how did they acquire that? Because there was no provenance for half this stuff from Dennis Nilsson's house, and I eventually found out it actually came from um, his biographer. So he, because he had acquired a lot of Dennis's stuff and then he gave it to Two Swords. And his book is, was it Killing for Company? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, he's, he was an absolute. I, I didn't watch the television programme back. It, but it was actually it was good. David good. Tennant was yeah. amazing. Yeah, so I understand. And obviously, surrounded by the objects from his two murder houses in the Crime Museum was, was, very, was very amazing. But also, one day I remember. There were some of the objects we didn't have on display in the showcase underneath in the cupboard, and I was like, we were going through, and I was like, wow, what's this? And it was like a piece of like a piece of board, and it turned out to have been the backing to where the bath was in in the bathroom, and then there was this sort of bread stack sort of thing in there, and I was like, why is this like bread stack bin thing in there? And I got it out, and it was inside. Obviously, I don't think it had been removed from the evidence bag since that since the eighties, and all this dust came out, and I suddenly had an attack. And it was like choking me, and I had to go to hospital. I was like the curse of Dennis Nielsen strikes again. And then when I was at Two Swords, I was touching these pots and stuff. And then I found the paperwork for this pot. It turned out there was hepatitis. Oh my! Had been actually found on it. And I then thought, well, I'm hoping the spores have died because I might have to go and get tested for that now. 
<laughs> so sometimes you have to be sort of careful regarding health and safety yeah. working in museums, obviously. Yeah, it's but the the things that you've seen, I didn't even know there was a, a, a an archive of, of two sorts. It makes sense because if I'm right in saying she made the death masks. Mm, from the French Revolution, for a lot of them, yeah. yeah. And then over the years, when her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, obviously the Two-Sword family have no real connection with, with the brand anymore because no. it's owned by a different company. Um, and now, sadly, those archives are just sort of... They're slowly getting things out, and they've just... I don't know whether you remember, but a few years ago, I was there when they actually closed the Chamber of Horrors, and I thought, Madame Tussauds will be turning in her grave if she saw this. Yeah. And thankfully, they've rethought it and reopened it last October, oh, so good. I went to see it when the day it opened. And... Um, it's a lot smaller than it was. There's only sort of like, you know, half a dozen figures, but they've done several of them animatronic. So Christie is in his seat, in his in his lounge, moving a paper up and down, and it's one of the most accurate portraits because they don't actually like calling them waxworks in two swords. They're actually called wax portraits. Oh, right. Um, which kind of elevates their status, I suppose. But there was always a separate room back in, before the, the, the name Chamber of Horrors came along, which was actually given by a journalist. But before that, because there was this whole idea of having criminals, which were fascinating people, but they didn't want them in the same physical space as the royalty and the celebrities. They thought we need to put them in a separate room. So that's what it was called initially. Um, and then the, the journalist came along and said, right, this is a chamber of horrors. And the name stuck ever since. I, I went there with uh, a group of people on a tour and there was... Uh, a wax portrait of Adolf Hitler. There's a despot, yeah. an area of despots. Yeah. He wasn't there last time I went a few oh, months ago. He? I didn't actually see him in there. And his his hair apparently used to grow. There was this story about uh, Adolf Hitler's hair used to grow and wow. he used to have a, a regular cut. I'm not, I'm not joking. Um, and I discovered an interesting story about... Some of the curators have written in their books on, on the history of the museum about a death mask in the Black Museum growing whiskers and things like that and we sort of the, me and the current curator thought well maybe it could be this particular mask which is still in there now but then I've gone through the British newspaper archive and I actually found lots of other newspaper articles about this mask which predated the one we thought it was Right. so I don't know what happened to that mask but yes the hair would grow on this one and it was part of this, this myth of the Black Museum it's fascinating stuff and the, the British you know, newspaper archive for any historian you know, you have to get it. You have to subscribe because it changes your life, really. Oh, is there a subscription for... Oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's You know, it's not cheap, but for a year, you know, I'm going to live on it, that and Ancestry and other things as well. Oh. Because for me, when I'm learning about criminals, and, but more to the victims, actually, I'm interested in about finding um, forgotten victims of crime um, and their final resting places. That's really interesting because we always talk about the murderer we yeah, very rarely do we talk yeah. about the victims and that's the thing crime. I'm very passionate about the victims of these crimes especially from Victorian times when many people we still don't know where a lot of the, the victims are so I'm you know myself and other people we go around all the different churchyards and graveyards around the country tracking down lost victims of crime especially from the Victorian period which are largely unknown um, so yeah you'll speak to most of my friends or see my Facebook post and I'm in another churchyard today or another grave today you know Thorpley Soken oh very nice link <laughs> I, well I used to go to school in Thorpley Soken so I know you went to school in Thorpley Soken yeah. I didn't know that yeah 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 yeah. I didn't know that yeah so I went to school in oh Thorpley Soken so and it was always the Queen's physician was buried in the and it's like he did, yeah, so. yeah. Um, Sir William Gull, yeah yeah so when I saw a post of yours saying I'm going to Thorpe Soken, I'm like, I know, I, I know exactly <laughs> where the grave is because as a kid we all wow. used to go in there. Yeah, amazing. So um, for the last twenty years, I've been Sir William's first ever official biographer. So he's the other main man in my life. Um, and at the moment, I'm in, trying, in the early processes of organising the new grave because if you remember, um, there's three steps and yep. then there's a cross and the cross is smashed on the floor. Oh. And that got smashed sort of in the early 90s, we think, through to various reasons. And so because I'm friends with the, his descendants and family, uh, we're just trying to organise different things at the moment. I've had all those different stonemasons out to look at it and do sort of like, you know, pricing and everything for it. So it's going to be a few thousand pounds, but it's going to be worth getting it done because for me as a biographer, I want to dispel and put a permanent black line under the fact that he was not Jack the Ripper because he is at like, the end of all the films, of course, and that I will prove he wasn't Jack the Ripper. I have an alibi. He wasn't even in London at the time of these murders. Um, and his reputation has wrongly been tarnished. He was certainly an ever-contemporary suspect. His name does not appear in any paperwork from that time. Really, his name first really gets dragged into this story in the early 70s. Oh, really? So it's a very modern 
modern suspect. He's a modern suspect. Um, but yeah, no, so I spend a lot of my time at Thorpe um, doing loads of research yeah. there. And it's a lovely village. It's, it's beautiful. But everyone going down to Frinton, everything mm. goes through that one road. It's just crazy. Yeah, it is. And the potholes. Oh. <laughs> a shout out to the local villagers who I know who are desperate with their potholes to be sorted like every other village in this country. Um, but yeah, I'll be there in a few weeks' time. There's various events and um, hopefully I'll be doing some more lectures for the locals as well, keeping them updated with my research yeah, cool. on Sir William. Well, if you get, when you get to the church, if you have the church, if you're going towards, you've got a mini roundabout, yep. you turn left down there, that's where my school was. So ah. it used to run right around there. Yeah, so I've done lectures at Rolf's School, which oh, is yeah, just yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. on the high street yeah. um, in the past. Yeah. But um, no, yeah. definitely not Jack the Ripper. <laughs> so how do you, how does Jack the Ripper progress for you? Because there are a lot of um, theories around who's... Um, so we, many. We so haven't many. got time on this. Uh, yeah, I think we've got <laughs> about 14 hours on this one disc and I haven't got time to go through it all. But how are you going to progress that um, from your, your perspective? Um, the way Ripperology, as it's known, has sort of evolved over the last years is because although a lot of people still play the game, who was Jack the Ripper? I think we could be playing that till the end of time, quite frankly, mm. unless some physical evidence comes forward, unless some more documents come to light. And that is possible because, I mean, even as late as, as 1988, the Black Museum did get an anonymous package which contained the original scene of crime photographs. We really? did not even have half of those until 1988 of the Ripper victims. They came back in an anonymous package, as well as the original Dear Boss letter with the famous name Jack the Ripper on it. So it is possible that there is still definitely more paperwork out there um, so and but until something like that comes across and we can prove its provenance and it's definitely legit I think we're going to have a real difficulty proving who the Ripper was mm. for me personally I'm more interested in the victims these days so I've spent the last 20 years going to places taking photographs connected with the life stories of our victims and each year myself and other people we go to the graves of all the ladies and place flowers on the anniversaries and and maintain their graves as other people do as well so for me again it's about remembering the ladies connected with that case as I said you can be guessing till the kingdom comes you know until who Jack was but yeah more, more research on the area is always good and more research on the victims lives yeah, because yeah, you're right. We, we may never know who Jack the Ripper was, no. but we'll always know who the victims were. Yeah, and up until the last few years, certainly, they have been largely forgotten, as most victims of crime yeah. sadly are, because how many... You go to General Joe Public and you say, name some famous murderers, and they could list off thousands. Name some famous victims. People struggle. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I wonder, I mean, there must be descendants of these victims. Do you, yeah. do you track them down? or? Um, I personally haven't done that, but lots of other um, great researchers have. I've met a couple of descendants over the years from two of the ladies. Um, and the families are all very different. Some are like, yay, we're related to a Ripper victim. We're quite sort of, you know, not proud is the wrong word, but sort of fascinated. Yeah. And done, but the, some other people I've met are like, well, she was the black sheep of our family. She was a lady of the night. We don't really want to talk about it. So it's, it is interesting. You always have to be respectful whenever you meet families, obviously, and descendants. And I never knew how Sir William's family would, would take me because they were amazing because I was the first researcher they ever allowed to go to see the family archive, which isn't even in this country. They invited me to their home abroad, which is amazing. And they were like, we're so glad you're writing a book on this man's life to prove his innocence because it's his family. You know, we've known that, but the rest of the world hasn't. Yeah. So... And he's a victim as well, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's still recent history. I know it's, you know, we're, we're talking about the Victorian times, but... It's not Tudor history. No. You know? And yet there's still new stuff being found all the time in Tudor archives. Yeah. So, you know, things can change. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. When do you stop collecting? When I die, probably. <laughs> well, I mean, I've run out of space in this little place, but and all these bookshelves are double-backed, so there's books behind books. Um... If I could, if I won the lottery, what I'd really like to do is establish uh, the Civita True Crime Archive Institute or something like that, where I could actually give all of these objects, catalogue all the books, actually have museum displays, you know, sort of sort of a building somewhere, um, which I could bestow it all to the to the, the nation at some point. That would be a really lovely thing to do. Um, but yeah, as most people know, if you're a collector, it's kind of my addiction. I don't drink and I smoke. I just by crime-related things. Yeah, no, and I, I, I get it. Who's, can I ask who the picture? Who's the inspector on the... Yeah, so that's Jack Warner. Oh, it is Jack Warner. I yeah, thought it was. Yeah, I've got a few autographs from Jack. 
there. Now he joined the police when he joined the the, the police as as Dixon and Doc Green. Of course, he was old enough to have retired. Mm. I, mean, I think Blue he, Lamp's one of my favourite films. I think he was fifty-seven when he actually joined the police, and okay. and he's he's buried in the, the East London Cemetery, isn't he? He's actually not. Is he that not? That is another myth because I've been doing some research on his funeral and stuff, and no, he's not buried there. Oh. So I don't know where that myth started. Um, he's buried somewhere else, which I'm hoping to sort out. But yeah, there's all sorts of different posters in here. We've got like that's an original one from the Great Train Robbery from 1963. Oh, wow. That's one of the the few one. There were several wanted oh, well, posters. I was, I was right. It was the eighth of August, 1963. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I sort of am on the train line near Cheddington, I'm going through it on the train. I always like give a little wave to where the bridge is. That is brilliant. Have they all all the robbers? Have they all passed away now? Are they? I think uh... I believe one may still be around. Tommy went sadly, but I believe Robert is still around unless he's passed, and I don't know. I saw that. Um... I don't know whether it was confirmed, but uh, Ronnie Knight passed away, I think, last yeah, week. Yeah. Um, he was another interesting character, obviously the, the former husband of Dame Barbara Windsor. But Yeah, there's a few yeah. newspaper articles around on that yeah. at the time. But, but these are all people that have got an interesting story. And I like the 60s gangland stuff. I, okay. do, I, I do like that because I just think it's... One of the cases I am interested in from the 60s is the Jack the Stripper murders, the Hammersmith Nudes murders. Because, oh, really? Um, there were several... I mean, that perpetrator was never caught either. And, in fact, you're only sitting a few hundred yards away from where one of the, the victim's bodies was found because literally opposite where I live here at Kensington on Haunton Street where the town hall is, where they built the 1965 uh, town hall, literally there's a, there's a tree <clears throat> and it's literally where that tree was where one of the victim's bodies was found. Wow. And when I only sort of, um, I do my power walk down to the Thames 15 minutes from here at Hammersmith, and sadly that's where several of the victims' bodies were found as well. well. So, not a name I know, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, there's a few possible perpetrators, but nobody was ever caught or convicted for that series of crimes. And you know, over a dozen ladies in the 1960s, many of them sex workers, sadly, um, but but not all. So that's a, a there's lots of documentaries on that and there's all sorts of things going on in that at the moment research wise so that's quite something interesting from the 60s and there's one of the victims who's actually found not far from here um was involved in a few of the other famous 60s cases in the courts and stuff as well so people say i mean is it a conspiracy theory you know what's going on so many different theories but it was such a murky world then the, mm. the murder of freddie mills because he's now been a possible jack the stripper Perpetrator. Who, Freddie Mills? He's on the list. No way. Yeah. Well, I just I didn't even know that. We haven't discussed uh, no, that. So. No, no. Yeah, no, I've got the book here. And because he, <laughs> yeah, he was... Freddie Mills. He, oh, there you go. So he, <laughs> he was... was he, he was murdered in Soho, found in the boot of a, a Jag or something similar. He wasn't found in the boot. He was just found in the car. Well, he was found in the car. Shotgun. All right, well, yeah, but like you say, why, <laughs> make, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? Yeah. But Yeah, well, I had, a, I had a relative that worked on that case. Oh, wow. Who's passed away now? But he um, he was in the Metropolitan Police, so yeah. That that's another fascinating case. Yeah, and there are there's so many. I mean, you only have to. the The problem I I have now is that there are so many homicides that take place. Often they don't even make the front page or anywhere near the front page. Mm. Whereas, thirty forty years ago. It would have been headline news if there'd have been a, been a murder. I worked on a. We used to do cold case reviews, mm. and and they are absolutely fascinating. And I worked on one particular case where um, a lady called Nora Trott, and she was murdered. I think it's nineteen seventy five in South Essex, and we eventually caught the suspect through DNA. They he came back to the UK first time forever from Jersey got arrested for drink driving they took his dna and bingo because we'd reopened the case the yeah. crime cold case and review that's team the way a lot of the crimes are now the older ones are being being you know solved through modern dna techniques and you know it's getting the science is just getting so amazing do you think uh, uh, bear in mind the archives that are available because of the way that dna is actually made there will be somebody from there'll be a relative of jack the ripper today yeah if there were any items that had dna on them they'd be able to get to 
ah, well, this is the problem. You've got to have something from the scene of crime, obviously, to analyse it right. against. And there is nothing. There's nothing. There's sadly nothing. The one piece which which may have held some clue was the piece of bloodstained apron, which came from Catherine Eddowes' body, which was found in Goulston Street. But sadly, you know, they didn't think to keep these things back then. Obviously, they didn't know about science was going to be so revolutionary in the future. And so after a few days of that rag, which had feces and blood all over it, they would have just, you know, burnt it or got rid of it. So that's sort of the one piece of evidence right, that okay. would have helped, possibly. But then saying that, you still have to have something from a perpetrator as well to match it against. <laughs> but you do. But so. but if you the uh, genetics uh, genealogy lady that I, I interviewed, she actually can pinpoint people from particular areas yeah no i've been so, reading about that it's yeah, amazing and it's, isn't it and yeah. then now actually i believe can even tell the color of people's eyes and hair really and yeah. race and stuff as well apparently from from things christine, so christine Burke, amazing yeah. it is it's, it's brilliant and when you think it's still a modern technique it's 30 years old the dna you know dna convictions um, and it'll still keep improving, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely! You know. Technology in itself. Yeah, if you if you look at the um, a book, if it's been used to to write on, you can do all your as There's so many things, but it's having that way with all to actually take these things out because you know, greatest respect to my former colleagues. They've got enough to do without going through archives and getting them. No, revisited. and this this is a problem we have as historians. I'm so I'm on the committee for the Police History Society, and I was for many years on the on the Met Police History Society, and the big Police History Society. They're really really hot on sort of archives and how we preserve things for the future, and also trying to educate officers who indeed are busy with other things. We're really trying at the moment to do a huge push and a drive in this country to say, look, guys, these things do need to be kept. You, it's part of our responsibility as a collective sort of in charge of archives and history. Please help us. Mm. Don't just chuck things in the skip. Um, but as I said, the the issue we're going to have is how do you collect digital history in the future? Because that's going to be a real issue. But you'll always, you're always going to have physical exhibits from a crime scene. Yes. It's how they keep those yeah. and... and you know, maintain them for... And you can't keep everything. I mean, obviously the Met has a mass, you know, several massive storage areas. Um, I was very <coughs> lucky in that I got introduced to the person who owned just in his in his cellar because his dad owned Rillington Place. He was the last oh, person right. to own it. And then they kept the door, not the front door, but the door from the wash house, which was where Beryl and the baby's bodies were fad- sadly found. And... We were chatting, both father and son had written books on this case and we were like chatting over lunch and he says, well, I've still got the door. We were like, what? You've still got the door from Rillington Place? And he was like, yeah, it's just downstairs. I was going to skip it. Why do you want to see it? I was like, oh my God, yes. You know, so we went down and I'm like touching this door, which might seem a bit bizarre to people, but it's like, but this is a piece of history. Yeah. And then thankfully he says, well, I was help, an enabler. So we managed to get it so that the crime museum and the, the Met Police history now have that. They've actually oh, acquired wow. it. They've got it in storage for posterity. But I, we were very lucky. We, we went to an event at Buckingham Palace and my the guy that was we were with, he just won Britain's Got Talent. And um, Colin Thackeray, he's, a, he's at uh, the Royal Hospital at Chelsea. And he shook the Queen's hand. And as he walks over, my wife grabbed his hand and said, <laughs> I am now shaking the hand that last shook the hand of the Queen. But I get it, you know, touching touching a door, yeah. it doesn't mean anything to no, so many people. But, but it's the significance of yeah, that door and where yeah. it came from and the, the tragedy that lay behind it physically. There was a body behind that door in that room. Mm. And then when you meet the victim's families, who I have done, I've met Beryl's brother. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because he wrote an amazing book um, recently and um, saying how he very much believed that Timothy Evans was guilty. He did kill his sister, and it wasn't Christie that did it. Really? And a lot of us historians have believed that for a long time, but history's narrative is very stuck that Christie did kill Beryl and the baby, but actually in myself and other historians... I'm pretty convinced he didn't. Right. For lots of different reasons, including what happened to Beryl. But there's, trying to challenge narratives of history is very difficult as well when they're well established. Have you ever met anyone from the judiciary? 
I mean, because they, they actually, they hold so many fascinating stories around. Yeah, over the years, um, I've have been very lucky to meet a few judges and QCs and that on my tours, actually. Yeah. Um, and when they sort of like first see me, they go, oh, tall blonde, oh, she's not going to know anything. And then I sort of come out with all these facts and then said I'd worked at Scotland Yard. They're like, oh. And I says, well, by the way, I have almost a complete set of the notable British trial books. So then they're like... Oh, this person has some knowledge. <laughs> um, but yeah, they've got fascinating stories, which is why behind you, on the two shelves oh above you, life. are all of the judges and barristers and solicitors' books and memories from, from out throughout history, from famous people from, you know, we've got the scientists there, but on the top shelves is where, you know, Sir Travis Humphreys and or Goddard and all sorts of famous memories from famous judges and that. How brilliant. So each each shelf in this room, it looks as though it might be chaotic. It's not. Every single shelf is organised thematically. I know exactly every single book is and all the files and stuff. So you have to and you don't have that much room. You have to be organised. You, you need to speak <laughs> to my lovely friend Nigel Lithman because he worked on 100 murders during his time wow, as, a, as a barrister. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And he's fascinating. You do your tours. Is that your full-time role um they're sort of um they it has been over the last few years but i've also been doing museum work and other voluntary work but um i've recently started working at st paul's cathedral um on wednesdays sort of uh, um training to be a tour guide there because i just love history in general and that was one of the first buildings i ever came to when i as a little girl i still have all my memorabilia from that from 40 years ago so um and that's sort of also helping to do a little bit of research for for my biography on sir william because it was his favorite building as well do you know i've never been You've never been? Never been inside. It's amazing. It's pretty pricey to get into these days, mm. um, but it's worth every penny because you're helping to keep and maintain the building. Yeah, of course. But, I mean, it's the 300th anniversary this year of Sir Christopher Wren, so we're having the big Thanksgiving service tomorrow, which I'm going to, actually. Oh, how brilliant. Um, and doing my shift on Wednesday. But, yeah, no, it's an amazing building and so part of London history, oh. as you can imagine. And there's uh, iconic photographs of... The, the World War Two stuff and people think how did they not get hit well it did but people were on the on the roof trying to stop the incendiary devices exactly you had the St Paul's Watch who were doing fantastic work um, and funnily enough the, one of the guys who then was called in to sort of take the one of the bombs which was then taken away was actually um, my namesake so I'll never forget a Lieutenant Davis <laughs> that was my married name um, actually we removed and he got to a, an, an award for that as well wow. so yeah another whole part of history but you go through that part of London and you can just live it city. can't you I just love it yeah I do so much has gone though bearing in mind what it was must have been oh. like before it got hit well, I was looking yeah. at a photograph from the 1980s, as recent as that, where there were no skyscrapers. Everything no, was... No, and now it's People have done some of these great comparison pictures, haven't they? Of looking over Greenwich. Yeah. Oh, before I know. and after. You know, look at... Oh, it's amazing. Well, that's another great place, isn't it? And people don't realise the significance of Greenwich from the Maritime Museum yeah, yeah. and... and uh, Great. Used for a lot of films. People might actually recognise it when they see it. It's been in so many films, especially true crime films as well, funnily oh, really? enough. Um, filming is something that I've always been interested in. And, um, certainly by one of my favourite Jack Ripper films is Murder by Decree with Christopher Plummer in it, plays Sherlock Holmes and James Mason. And that was all filmed around all of those buildings at Greenwich. And, uh, yeah, a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stuff, I mean, it's just, it's like a time capsule in there, isn't it? Same as Spitalfields where I did my tours, uh, Lutherland, as some of them call it now. And even in the new film, which came out a few months ago, the new Luther film, it's by Spitalfields Church and all the places I do on my tour, there's like an aerial drone shot over it and we're all going, yeah, it's where it was filmed. But there's there's always been filming, hasn't there, you know, throughout history going sort of, especially in the Whitechapel area. Yeah, yeah. And, that. and you've got your signed photograph of Idris up, up there. I do, I'm very lucky to have that. Um, You'll be the envy of many... Uh, I got that a few years ago when that series was young, though, so before he became mega famous. famous yeah. yeah. Are there any actors that you particularly like in crime films? You, you spoke um, of Michael Caine, who is one of my... I met Michael a couple of times, actually. I've been very you? lucky. I've got lots of signed photographs um, from him and, and images with him, so I was very lucky to meet him on a few occasions. Um, I think I've met most people I've ever wanted to meet, really, regarding crime stuff regarding other actors I've met most of them I've always wanted to meet as well the one person who I never tragically got to meet who I would have loved to have met was John Pertwee mm. um, I am a bit of a Doctor Who fan but yes I never met John but yeah I've a lot of this, loads of signed photographs around the study here from all sorts of series and um, yeah I don't know 
Not that many, no. <laughs> oh, the, the, there are some. Some are particularly good at playing within crime detectives. Yeah, detective roles. I mean, apart from John Thor, obviously, I was. I'm a big fan of David Jason, and I met him a couple of times um, as Frost. I mean, he was amazing. Oh, he was but what, what a bloke! I and mean, I've met David Suchet a couple of times because I'm a big Poirot fan. So oh. I've got signed autographs from him as well. So I've met. I think most of my heroes, oh, crime wise. That's fantastic. And if people want to take you you know up on being a tour guide how do we get hold of you What's so i'm the... mainly doing private tours these days um so but they can sort of um we can put my email up on yeah yeah I'll, I'll, that's I'll, not I'll, a problem I'll, just I'll privately off. email me you don't have a public facing website or anything like no, that. no it's like i haven't and it's you probably don't need to well i probably should have one and i've actually just sort of bought two or three domain names um, so I'm gonna, I will be establishing a proper website hopefully this year. So I'll be known as the the crime historian. That's sort of my that my brand, and I'm hoping to sort of maybe sort of maybe do some sort of theatre shows maybe in the future or something like that. A lot of my colleagues are doing that at the moment. So I've got a few things in the pipeline, but yeah, that's. I mean, I've even got my own little stamp here which I had made. I love putting this on my cards, and that's got like a picture of me at the top pack. It says Lindsay Civita, crime historian. Everybody needs their own stamp. (laughs) One of my heroes was a famous criminologist who I'm sure many of your listeners will know, Jonathan Goodman. He did dozens and dozens of books, lived in Ealing. I never got to meet Jonathan. He's the one criminologist I'd love to have met. But um, a few years ago, I purchased some of his private library, which came up for auction. And in his books, he had an embossed stamp saying Jonathan Goodman crime library type thing. And I recently had one identically made. So I've now got to go through all my books and stamp them with my private stamp at some point. That is brilliant. would be nice to have a, a public library or collection of just true crime stuff. Yeah. Including great books and ephemera. Because some of the stuff that I'm, I'm sitting on, so to speak... You know, the majority of people will never ever see it, and that's such a shame. I would like other people to be able to see my objects. And that's yeah, absolutely, because you've got them. You want people to actually. That's why one of the, my ideas to have sort of a stage show is to be able to go around the country and actually take a lot of these exhibits on the road with me, and people could then see them on stage and on the massive PowerPoint or whatever at the back. And so maybe that's something that could be done. I see your novel from hell. Ah, yes, the Johnny Depp film. Johnny Depp film. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine who I do work with, he took Johnny Depp round on the, on a recce round Whitechapel to, to actually... Ah, uh, he went on a couple of tours, actually, yeah. with a couple of uh, Ripper colleagues I know as well, and uh, Stuart Evans, an amazing author and researcher, he actually went to the film set in Prague... Oh, did he? ..where they filmed it, because they literally reconstructed the Ten Bells and section of the church in the middle of this field because it was just impractical to actually film on location. Yeah, and if people have never been to that part of London, it's got so much... I mean, I was there for the Salvador Dali exhibition, which is down there at the moment. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, it's brilliant, immersive. I like Dali. Absolutely brilliant. I need to see the Gilbert and George new museum exhibition as well, which they've just opened. Oh, right. I need to go to that. Well, look, but if you go through Brick Lane, you've got all the old buildings that the Huguenots lived in, and mm. it's just such a... My favourite street is Wilkes Street, which I do the tours down, and it's like, you know, some of these buildings from the early 1700s, yeah. it's like going back in time. It is. Which is what I sort of say to the people on the tours, you know, you're going to... I love this street because you're going to feel like you're going back in time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and people don't realise, they see all these big attic windows and all these amazing houses, and they think, well, they don't really look up, because people don't look up. I always say to everybody who comes to London, do look up, because history's above us, yeah, as well is. as at the, the ground oh. level. And these windows, you know, that's because the looms are in there and they're making all this amazing Spitalfield silk. I mean, Spitalfield silk was so famous. Queen Victoria had her wedding dress made there, you know. So, and that part of history, the houses, there's so much still there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, very lucky. Very lucky it didn't get bombed. Lindsay, I've really enjoyed our, our chat today. But before I conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, also or correct? Um... No, really, just I encourage people, if they have from family members, police or crime-related documents, you know, which they they want to donate, then think about their local archives and let's help, you know, sort of keep history and protect it, 
me and everything. That's all I can say. And if people want to um, to get in contact with me, they can via, via you, whatever, and come and join me on a tour. But, um, yeah, maybe I'll see people in the future. Let's hope so. I'm going to put all your details in the body. Thank the, you. Of thanks of for having podcast. me. No, thank you. It's, it's been absolutely brilliant. And I'm absolutely in awe of everything that you've got in your room here. It's fantastic. Thank you.